So here we are on what's about, what, the 10th day or so of the retreat. We've sat up here a lot in the mornings and the evenings, giving a lot of instructions and exhortations about practice, given a lot of uh, options for practice, talking about awareness of the body, of the breath, of using the breath to calm ourselves, being aware of emotions, moods, mind states. Um, This morning, or was it yesterday, Joseph gave the more subtle um, meditation object of Vedna or feeling tone. So all of these uh, areas, venues for our mindfulness, ways we can develop this continuity of mindfulness. But what's actually happening most of the time, especially in the non-formal meditation periods? What's your predominant experience? Are you thinking a lot? This is what happens. This is what we see in our practice. We have this intention to be present. We follow these instructions. And again and again, the mind goes off into thought, into fantasy. Particularly, if not all, most of the time, thoughts of past and future. Sometimes we have thoughts of the present. That's actually a little bit of an advanced practice, thinking about what's happening now, but it's still thinking. You know, thinking about our practice, thinking about the breath, still thinking. And I wanted to talk about this tonight just so we are really honest about what's actually happening. You know, that we don't deny that this is a a big part of many of our experience on retreat. And also so you get a sense you're not alone. If you're feeling that everyone else is just zooming around in blissful peace and quiet, I don't think so. I actually think there's a lot of this going on. And in meditation, we get to see this. We get to see the nature of our mind. It's a little humbling, isn't it? You know, we, we give, try to follow these instructions, try to sit down and be calm and quiet, and zoom, 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 off we go. One of my favorite cartoons recently is um, from that strip, Rhymes with Orange. And the little uh, subtitle of it is, As Medicine Advances. And the scenario is a a patient sitting in the doctor's examining room, and they're wearing that little thin paper dress they make you put on so you kind of know who's who's got the position of authority in in the relationship. And the doctor has come in with the clipboard and is obviously reading the results of a test. And the doctor says, the MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. (laughs) We don't need an MRI to see that. I mean, we just sit here and the mind goes around and around and around. It's what the mind does. Now, in speaking about it like this, I don't want to give the impression that thoughts are the enemy, that uh, you know, a good meditation is to get rid of thoughts, to be blank, to be this kind of you know, zoned out place. It's not that at all. But really, um, to see the power of our thoughts. You might remember in my talk that I gave a, a week ago, uh, I started with that quote from the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things, mind is chief. Because it, and it's really pointing to the fact that through our thoughts, we create our world. We create the reality that we live in. So it's speaking to the importance of looking at 
the very nature of these thoughts because they're so important. What we see when we look at the realm of thought, our minds, that it's often really chaotic. It's this jumble, this push and pull, this field of the kalesas, this relentless alternating of greed and aversion with a good dose of delusion thrown in for, for good measure. This is what we're in most of the time. And I was thinking about this, this, how we can just go back and forth so quickly and easily between wanting and not wanting, greed and aversion. I was reminded of one of my favorite stories, childhood stories from a long time ago. Do you remember Dr. Doolittle, the guy who could speak to animals, and he had this amazing menagerie of creatures that he had relationships with, talked to? And one was the push-me-pull-you. And it was this antelope kind of being that had a head at both ends, and they were always arguing, you know, which, which way should we go? What should we do? You know, where should we eat? What, what should happen now? This is what's like in our minds a lot of the time, this, this tug of war, this struggle between wanting and not wanting. Now, the thing is, this is actually pretty normal. This is the human condition. We've had years of practice thinking this way, relating to our experience in this way. I caught my attention the other morning. Joseph, in responding to a question, said, distraction is the habit of the mind. We've trained in distraction. We've, we've got PhDs in distraction. We've spent years uh, cultivating this kind of mind that goes back and forth about everything we experience. And actually, a few of us teachers were, were talking the other day about how hard retreats are and really appreciating your practice, the sincerity of your practice in settling in for all these weeks of practice because how hard retreats are, mainly because of the craziness of our minds, this pushing and pulling that's always happening, especially in the beginning of practice, but really in the beginning of any retreat. And by beginning, I'm having a very big picture of what beginning means. I don't mean a few days or years. I mean, really, the long-term view. It's tough. And again, Joseph said he can still remember the first time his mind settled down a little and he had that taste of peace or calm. And he just said, ah, this is what they're talking about. It was such a revelation, and it was such a difference to his normal way of being with his mind, with his thoughts. So this is what we work with a lot in our practice. It's the nature of the mind to think. Again, emphasizing it's not that this is bad or wrong. You know, we can't expect it to stop or change. This is what the ears hear, the eyes see, the mind thinks. But here, as meditators on a retreat like this, we can begin to get curious about what we're thinking about. And especially on a retreat like this, where we don't actually need to think about very much. I mean, how much thinking do you really literally need to do to get through a day here? <laughs> it's not very much, is it? You know, oh, wake up, go sit, shower, eat. It's pretty, no one's expecting you to write an editorial about the current events of the world or a synopsis of your day or 
have some witty repartee to offer at the next meal that you go to? Because it's in silence. You know, you don't need to be creating and, and uh, coming up with opinions and ideas the way we often do in our life, whether we need to or not. Here we really don't need to. Again, Joseph has this great line, nothing is worth thinking about. Two meanings to that, obviously. But just to start to look at how much we fill our minds up and how much is extra. <coughs> how much is just this relentless pushing and pulling, greed and aversion and delusion, <coughs> cycling around in our experience. So we start to look at the very nature of thought. What is a thought? It's a string of words in the mind, perhaps an image. Some people are more visual than others. We hear it, don't we? You know, so it's kind, kind of curious sometimes to even want, you know, whose voice is that? Is it our voice? It's not quite our voice, but just to get curious about it. It's actually just a blip of energy in the mind. And what's interesting about thoughts is they have the power that we choose to give them. If we believe them, as the Dhammapada said, they create our world. If we notice that they're there and let them go, they're like a, a stone falling into a pool. They just drop in and disappear. We have this choice about seeing or cultivating a different relationship to thought. Once we get curious, and start to see how much of it is extraneous, isn't necessary for our moment-to-moment -moment functioning. And when we look at thoughts and start to see them more clearly, pay attention as we do in meditation, it seems that they're very random, and certainly that we don't have any control over them. They're just arising, they're coming, it's like, where did that come from? But there actually is a conditioned nature to them. You know, we mightn't be able to understand it because it's through all the, you know, circuitous pathways of the mind and the little things that can trigger a, a stream of association. We mightn't understand it, but there, there is a lawful nature to them that, we, that they are rising out of our conditioning. And you probably know, you know, if... If you have an experience and aversion arises and you dwell on it and think about it, it's likely the next thought will be an aversive thought. We can see how they get conditioned. Um, and sometimes we can track a sequence of thoughts. It's like, you, you know, you're sitting there and you think, how on earth did I end up thinking about this? And then you go, oh yeah, I thought of that and then that. And, that, and it's like, you know, there's leaps that went from what, there, there was a reason, but that from where you started and where you ended up, it's like worlds apart. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do this. I actually think it's, it's quite futile most of the time, but sometimes it's, it's just fascinating to see how, how we you know, weave this world out of these very disparate bits of information that we dredge up from our memory banks. Again, not encouraging you to do that, but uh, just to see that this is what the mind does. It's, it's like this, this uh, machine that just captures all this information and then tracks it and keeps throwing it back up, especially when we're not asking for it. We, you know, you're trying to remember something, it's gone, and then an hour later up it pops We're from the retrieval mechanism.
But what's more important about thoughts and the nature of thought is to begin to understand, and you've probably seen this already, it's, it's re really rather obvious, that whatever is unresolved for us, whatever has uncertainty about it, this will come up in our meditation. It's inevitable. It's, it's this, um, this is just the nature of our experience. And our willingness to be with this uncertainty, this unresolved experience, this worry, anxiety, whatever it is, our willingness to be with this, to get curious about this. As Pema Children said, I quoted her in my last talk also, this, that practice is learning to stay, to be with these places of tension in our experience. Willingness to be with that is what allows the practice to deepen and unfold. Unwillingness to be with it or identifying, making a story out of that is what leads to restlessness, to what leads to this tumbling of thought, these floods of thinking. And as I was thinking about this, I really saw that the core aspect or movement of mind or series of thoughts that cause this um, type of thinking, this obsessive thinking, this flood of thinking, are these variations of the thought, am I okay? Am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? That this is actually, to a large extent, at the core, it's the seed energy behind this fluttering nature, these floods of thoughts that can come. So much of our energy, our time, is spent pondering, wondering, exploring, worrying about these questions. Am I okay? Will I be okay? Was I okay? Encapsulated in that is all of our regrets about the past and our anxiety about the future. And again, this is the, the push and pull that we often find ourselves in. Now, this tendency of mind, of course, we didn't invent it in the 21st century, or the 20th, or the 19th, or any thousands of years before that. It's been a part of the human condition for a long time. The Buddha talked about this a lot, saw it as very central to our suffering, as really a cause of suffering. He said, this kind of thinking, this kind of dwelling on our experience leads to an increase of desire, leads to the solidification of a sense of self, and leads to an increase of ignorance. There's this great uh, passage in uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, Sutta number two, uh, the Sabasawa Sutta, which goes like this. Pay attention, it's a little complex. This is how she attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else she is inwardly perplexed about the present thus. Am I? Am I not? 
What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? The Buddha called this unwise attention and said that it leads to all kinds of suffering, that the unarisen taints arise, and taints is a, another variation of the kalesas, of the greed, aversion, and delusion, and arisen taints get stronger through this paying of attention. Yet it's what we do a lot of the time. How was I? How am I? How will I be? We see this mind, it's, it, you know, and it's, it's kind of deep in our culture. As I was thinking about who, you know, who could I give as a modern day example of this kind of mind, this worrying, fretting kind of mind, I thought of Woody Allen. He's kind of our exemplar of the neurotic mind in our culture. So I found this little quote. It's a little different, but it, it's kind of how we dwell on things. So again, don't need to listen as closely as when I read the Buddha, but it still bears close listening. To love, this is, so this is a direct quote from Woody Allen. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer. Not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. <laughs> to be happy is to love. To be happy then is to suffer. <laughs> but suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be unhappy, one must love, or love to suffer, or suffer from too much happiness. I hope you're getting this down. But this is what we do, isn't it? We, we obsess, we worry, what about this, and if I do this, and then that has that impact, and now I could do this, but no, what about that, and I did that in the past. This is the nature of our experience. We're always trying to figure it out. We're trying to fix it. We're trying to fix it. We're trying to fix ourselves through these machinations of the mind. Has it worked yet? Yet we keep doing it. It's all we know to do sometimes, is to gnaw on past and future, trying to figure it out. And so we see how much in meditation our mind is going between these two. It's a huge cause of restlessness. And I actually think that restlessness, not accepting what is, is one of the biggest causes of, um, is one of the biggest hindrances for Westerners. You know, all of the other hindrances, I actually think restlessness, if we could get to really work skillfully with that, huge, huge for us. I've seen in my practice in, in Asia and, and being with Asian teachers that they don't seem to have so much that tendency of mind. They're much more accepting of themselves and their situation. And if their teacher says, you know, sit down and stop thinking, they do it. It doesn't work for us here. We, we just have this obsession with our experience. And I really see that there's in a way that restlessness as a thread is both a cause and an effect of all of the hindrances. And I think you know, this is interesting or helpful for me to see because you need to you know, know all of the aspects of these experiences to be able to work with them um, skillfully, just to see the amount of restlessness that not getting what you want causes, that getting what you don't want 
causes. Yes, there's the aversion, there's a wanting, but there's restlessness there. Some level, whether it's superficial or quite deep, not allowing us to settle. And of course, doubt, central to doubt is restlessness, is not being able to land, not having confidence. And so we keep skimming off. It brings agitation to the mind and the body. So we need to look at this pervasive nature of restlessness and really start to know it so that it doesn't push us off our cushion, our meditation, our mindfulness. So I see this restlessness just woven through a lot of the ways we relate to our moment-to-moment experience. How often are you waiting for the next thing to happen. You're sitting, waiting for the period to end. You're sitting, wish you could be walking. Bell rings, you go out and walk. How long does it take before you start thinking, boy, I wish I was sitting instead of walking. Sitting is much better than walking. You come in and sit, you want to get up and walk again. You know, this is the mind doing this movement over and over again of dissatisfaction. How many mind moments do you spend waiting for lunch? And then lunch comes and you're not quite fully present because you're already thinking about going and having a nap or going for a walk or whatever you like to do. There's this constant not actually being present for what is. And we're searching here and there for a resolution to this problem that we feel, this suffering that we feel, and we don't actually know what the problem is or what we're looking for. We just know that it's not here. It's not in this moment. It's somewhere else. This vague sense of dissatisfaction, things not being quite right, really important to see if that's there for you, to recognize it, use your mindfulness to understand it the way we do, naming it, feeling it in the body, seeing the thoughts that are associated with it, just getting to see its nature and knowing that it's not the voice of wisdom. It's not what will lead you to more presence. It's actually going to, again, take you off your meditation seat. Because I've been thinking about writing this talk and this this whole area of restlessness I realized that for myself, it actually was uh, that I had some insight around it. Um, For me, like all of you, we've come away from home. I mean, I'm away from home for the six weeks that I'm teaching here. And I realized that underlying my being here was this sense of being kind of in a, not a limbo quite, but suspended, that my life is back in California. And I'm here and it's kind of this interruption of my life. And that I'm, you know, not quite fully here. This is just kind of something that I'm doing. But, you know, I keep thinking back to California, life in California, my friends and and, uh, connections back there. And I just had this realization actually this morning as I was sitting here that that's suffering, that my life is here. You know, and it was while I was sitting here, it was my life is here, sitting here in this meditation, feeling my knees on the cushion, taking the next breath. And it sounds sort of obvious. 
I mean, it's what we talk about all the time, being here, being here now. But there are ways we delude ourselves about these very obvious truths. And as I said, for me, it was kind of an insight that allowed me to become more fully present here. I really realize this is my life. My life is wherever I am. My home has to be wherever I am. <coughs> Maybe you're feeling a little bit the same, that this is kind of this interlude in your life, this stepping out of your life. This is your life. We need to be alive for it and know it. And I, I know, you know, you've had the, those moments. You feel the beauty and the power there is when we connect in that way. This is it. There is no other it elsewhere, in the future, in the past, somewhere else. It's really here. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, we get to experience the miracle of mindfulness that reveals our experience in this way. So as we pay more attention to our mind, as we get a little clearer, a little more connected, it can actually seem that our practice is increasing this restlessness, this, these movements of mind. I don't think that that's true. I think it's just revealing what's so often there. I think restlessness is actually really endemic in our culture, this busy, connected, wired, instant, you know, got to happen yesterday culture. It's a culture of restlessness. You know, Guy, we've been talking about this a number of times since he said that statistic about <coughs> teenagers these days sending 3,000 text messages a month, sending or receiving. So it's 100 or more a day, sending and receiving. Someone, so we're talking about it at lunch, and someone said they just read an article, uh, all of the college-age students who've just gone back to college, uh, of, that there are students sitting in their dorm rooms trying to work out you know, their new living arrangements with their roommates on their beds texting each other. <laughs> I said, you, he said, yes, that's what they're doing. And so, I mean, there's just something about that that, that has a restlessness in it, just that the thumb thing, I can't get it. But. <laughs> It's a culture of restlessness. So we really need to get curious about this. Uh, you know, I started thinking about restlessness and how endemic it was a couple of years ago. So I was um, seeing how pervasive it was for me and in the people I talked to. And one of the things uh, that you might know is that restlessness is one of the last fetters to go before enlightenment. There's four in this our system, four stage of, stages of enlightenment restlessness. It's a very subtle kind of restlessness. It's not, you know, uh, 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 kind of restlessness. But it's one of the last to go. So it's really very deep within us. So getting to know it in your practice, being able to work with it, see its nature, see its presence, and being able to work with it, really important, really helpful for most of us. So for me, a key is seeing it, the suffering nature of it. This very nature can, you know, be unpleasant in the body, in the mind. Doesn't allow us to find ease or peace. Doesn't allow us to settle. And it keeps us superficial. 
as I keep saying, this restlessness, it's like the pinball machine. You know, we're always ricocheting off into the next thing, to looking forward or into the past. Restlessness keeps us superficial. And then as we start to see that, it, we need to um, be aware of our relationship to that. We can often be really averse to it, really upset with it. It shouldn't be like that. I shouldn't have restlessness. Well, hello, you know, it's here, it's here, it's our reality. We need to practice with it. So we get curious about it. What is restlessness actually like? What's its energy like? And we can tell ourselves a story about it where it's very unpleasant, it's intolerable, but it is just energy. We can know it like any other experience. And so in this getting curious about it, if we um, make a big story about it, label it as, you know, restlessness, I can't tolerate this, of course the mind will enforce that, reinforce that. If we get curious about it and see it as energy, can we use that energy for practice? It's energy. Can we actually use that? Because restlessness often happens an uplifting kind of energy. Can we use that for practice? Is there any actual pleasantness in it? Guy, we were talking about this this morning, how to work with it. Guy suggested seeing if there's any pleasantness in the energy. It's interesting, again, how our labeling of something really determines what our experience is. We say it's unpleasant, by God, it's unpleasant, and we're going to reinforce that. So to get curious about it. If we have the sense it's not okay, it won't be okay. If we get curious about it, it's just another place to explore with our mindfulness. So there's working with the energy itself, but really at the heart of this talk, what I want to keep pointing to is what's underlying the restlessness. What's this issue that's always bubbling up there? As I said, for me, it's some variation of am I okay? Am I okay now? Am I okay before, future, whatever? And I really see this as like this seed issue. And so it reminded me of you know, the, the piece of grit they put in the oyster or that gets in the oyster that, that actually ends up making the pearl. But in the beginning, it's an irritant and we don't like it, and that's what causes the restlessness. And it really is preventing us from deepening because we're always going off in these different directions. The mind is just into past and future so easily and so quickly. If we're willing to stay with this, both the energy of the restlessness, but also this looking a little deeper, what, what, what is this core issue, underlying issue, this can really lead to a profound deepening in our practice as we're more able to be present. This is the pearl that we can find that gets created out of this initial irritant. Anything, if we turn to it with mindfulness, can lead to understanding. This particular area, if we start to really look at this core question, am I okay? can lead to a profound acceptance of who we are and what our experience is. And this is so essential for our practice.
So as I've been saying, out of this issue, am I okay, the mind moves in three ways. I was going to say main ways, but it's pretty much what the mind does. I think it's just three ways. Past, present, and future. What else is there? For the future, what's happening is comparing. And I want to talk a little bit about all three. So a huge one for us is the mind going into the past. Just bringing up stuff from our past. It's a really natural process that happens in meditation. There's actually something important happening in this. As I said, whatever is unresolved, whether it's a huge life issue, deep trauma, or the smallest thing, the the littlest incident that happened, if there's some way emotionally, psychologically, we haven't come to terms with that, haven't fully accepted that, this will come up for us. Whether it's something that happened yesterday or the long distant past that we thought was well over and done with. And these experiences can bring up all of these range of difficult emotions, guilt or shame or fear or anger or blame or judging, irritation. For many of us, we go through this process we call a life review, where just over time, every experience of this kind of nature, every unsettled, uh, difficult experience comes up, and we have to experience it again. You know, it's the work of a lot of therapy, but I think there's a real wisdom to the way it happens in meditation, this very organic way that this material, we don't go looking for it, no one's telling us to talk about it, but in this way, when we're ready, this material, these memories come up. Sometimes they are way overpowering, and and you need to work really skillfully with them. I'm not talking about needing to go into these things and and, um, bearing down on them. Really trusting the practice, talking with your teacher if you have some strong memories coming up that are challenging, (coughs) difficult, because this can be an important place of healing and learning and, and need to work skillfully. But it can be on a lesser level than that. You know, times that we weren't there for a friend, you know, kind of disappeared from their life when they needed us. Or we were mean to our sister when she was 10 years old. You know, we didn't let her play with us or, you know, something quite recent. Ways we weren't there for ourselves. Many of us have had the experience of actually abandoning ourselves. And a lot of regret, remorse, shame about that. And it can feel at times like we've gone through this. We've been on a lot of retreats, been through this process, but I see there's always new things to add to this list. Whatever is unresolved in my life, when I sit down to meditate, whether it's just what email I need to send or, you know, what business needs to be taken care of, it'll come up. And the longer we sit, the more space there is for this kind of process. It can be things you know, recently, what happening on this retreat or what was happening just before you came on the retreat. You don't leave your life at the door here. It's all here with you. And if it's unresolved, if there's some lack of acceptance of some uncertainty about an experience, it'll be here sooner or later with you on this retreat. Right here on the retreat, all of our different interactions with your fellow yogis and the way we can get irritated with them, impatient with them, annoyed at them. And then we can feel the impact of that. And the way we judge ourselves, that are critical of ourselves, we can feel that 
coming up. So we have a memory and then there's a response to it. I think it's interesting to notice, again, as part of the mindfulness, part of you know, getting curious. And what we often do in mindfulness is unpack experience. When we take it as a solid thing, it's, it's not very workable. But if we can see the layers of experience, the nature of experience, the components of experience, then it's workable. You know, like fear. Fear is just thoughts in the mind and a feeling in the body. But if we get caught in it, believe it, it's, 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 it's really difficult. In this way, with everything, we start to unpack. So notice what kind of energy comes with these memories. Is it, is it a downward kind of energy of sadness, regret, shame, or guilt? Or does the energy move up? Is it more anger, irritation, fierceness about the memory? So we pay attention to that and respond appropriately you know, in our mindfulness. But I really see there's a whole process we need to go through in working with these memories from the past, and we can't circumvent it. We might often think that we should be not have to go through this, but I've seen for myself and so many other people, really necessary. We need to acknowledge what's happened, accept what's happened, forgive whoever we need to forgive, ourself or other, and then develop compassion. These four parts are, are so important. The acknowledgement is really just recognizing whatever happened, happened. Recognizing the unskillful nature, the, the harmful nature of whatever we did to ourselves or to others, and not denying or minimizing it. The fact that it's up means it's meaningful for us. We don't need to say, oh, that, you know, I should be over that by now, or I should be able to deal with this, or I should have gotten beyond that. It's here. Let's pay attention to it. It's, it's part of this little seed of restlessness. We need to accept that whatever happened, happened. Yes, I did that. Or that happened to me. They did that to me. She said that to me. This is the acceptance. And in that, we really need to understand the difference between guilt and shame or, and remorse, guilt or shame and remorse. In guilt and shame, there's an identification with the action as being me and that I'm the one that's bad or wrong. And there's always a tendency to want to hide away. Not so helpful. Really not a skillful way to relate. Remorse looks at the same event and said, yes, I, says, yes, I, I did that, but sees the action as unskillful, not the doer, and makes a determination to learn from that, to have more understanding, to have acceptance about that experience. So remorse can be helpful. We can learn from remorse. Guilt and shame tends to keep us stuck. And then forgiveness. This great quote, forgiveness means letting, giving up all hope for a better past. How much of your time have you spent trying to redo the past? Taking back something you said, doing something you didn't do, not doing something you did do, all the if-onlys and I-should-haves. We can spend hours doing that. It's futile. We need 
at when we're ready, and again, you could give a whole talk about this. It's, it's such a deep area of forgiveness. But it is when we get to true acceptance that what happened happened, and we let go of the resentment and the blame and the judging or the feeling victimized. And we're really ready to move on. And then compassion, really bringing a tenderness to this experience. We're opening to it with love, understanding why whatever happened, happened. And I saw for myself moving through all those stages where at first when these memories would come up, I would just cringe, just this pushing, I don't, you know, it's so horrible, it's so painful. And a lot was things I did to myself, not taking care of myself. Just so, you know, I couldn't understand the person who would act like that. And then gradually there became acceptance and then a real forgiveness. And then ultimately this sweet compassion of just, this is the human condition. You know, that poor frightened girl or teenager, whatever she was going through, she did the best she could. So there's really a, a different relationship to those experiences now. So they're the four stages that I think are important to go through as these experiences from the past come up. You know, the smaller ones perhaps not so detailed, but the larger ones, the ones that really trigger us, really helpful. Acknowledgement, acceptance, forgiveness, and compassion. This allows that seed worry of how was I in the past to kind of resolve a little. And then there's the future, the other huge arena for our mind's activity. So much worry, anxiety, and planning. I, mean, I don't know about you, how much time do you spend planning? I mean, planning everything, planning how you do the laundry, planning when you'll pick your laundry up, what's the best time, you know, is it get there first or to get there last? Is it, you know, to, to have the laundry be in bags or not in bags. All of these conundrums that we face, the you know, challenges of yogi life, we can spend hours dwelling on when to take a shower. Is it better you know, before or after, or this time or that time? You know, planning the next hour, planning our next lifetime. How many of you have been on this retreat, planning your next retreat? You know, we, we just spend hours in this mind state. This scenario, that scenario, what about this? Add that factor, what about this person? What about that? It's endless. What kind of energy, what's the um, feeling in the body when you notice this kind of planning? There's agitation, isn't there? The, the, even, if, even if what we're thinking about is, is somewhat good, notice what it is. Sometimes there's a real anxiety. So again, in this unpacking, See the aversion that's there or the fear. Really notice that. Sometimes we're thinking about really things we're excited about in the future, things we want. Notice that energy and that in that there's grasping. There's a lot of wanting. And it's the actual pleasantness of the fantasy that keeps us obsessed in it, keeps us stuck in it. Really helpful when you notice these planning thoughts, these future thoughts, to notice the Vedna of them, as Joseph was talking about yesterday, the pleasantness or unpleasantness. Find that'll be a key to just unsticking quite a bit from them. And really to start to feel the suffering 
in this obsession with the future, in this fantasy, this fantasy of the future. It's not reality, is it? It's some imagination. For me, it was a, a big pinprick of the bubble of fantasy. You know, I, I could spend hours happily in fantasy on retreat. You know, it really makes the time go by very quickly, doesn't it? You know, decorating your fantasies and, you know, because you're in charge. You know, you're running the show and everything's kind of working out well and adding a bit of this and a bit of that. So after one retreat, I determined that I would compare my after-retreat life with my in-retreat fantasies to see how many of them actually came true. What do you think my hit rate was, my success rate? About zero, did someone say? Yeah. I mean, literally none of them came true in the way that I thought. The things that I want, thought I wanted to do, I didn't want to do. The, peop the conversations I thought I would have didn't happen. The way I related to things wasn't what I thought it would be. Nothing was what I was fantasizing about. So next time I was there fan fantasizing, it's like, why do it? Why create these fantasy worlds that don't really have anything to do with reality? To really see that, I mean, there's a pleasantness there, but it has nothing to do with reality. And to feel the impact living in this fantasy world has on your present moment experience. As I was saying before, in this, compared to the great fantasy, this, you know, rice cakes for dinner, tahini and peanut butter, what do I choose? I choose fantasy. <laughs> but there's no reality there. We really need to see this obsession with this daydream. I mean, really, it's a dream. It's an illusion. And it takes us out of being present for what is. You know, after a while, rice cakes start to look pretty good, actually. Everyone has their ways of creating how to eat, a, you know, whatever layers you put on top. If you're in your fantasy, you can't enjoy anything that's here. So really to see that, to see what it does. And then there's the present moment, really the heart of am I okay, to see that however you experience it, I think it's helpful if this speaks to you, to get really a visceral sense of that mind state, mind moment of am I okay. For me, it's a, a, it's a little kind of jittery because it's kind of looking around, checking out, you know, everyone else, how they're relating to me. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it as good as the others or better than the others? Am I better than yesterday? How will I be tomorrow? It's all, all of this kind of agitated comparing and judging. What do the teachers think of me? You know, as I leave the room, what are they thinking about me? Do they talk about me? You know, when they get together, let me tell you. I mean, we do talk a little bit because we need to share some information. We don't talk a lot about what's going on about you. It's not the top of our priority, but <laughs> maybe Carol does. She obsesses, but the rest of us. <laughs> okay, how did I say it? We care, we don't obsess. <laughs> and you can really see what you're often comparing yourself to is a made-up story. 
It's a made-up story of what we think. It's a made-up story about what the other yogis think about you. I mean, we all do this where we think everyone is noticing what we're doing. You know, how am I walking? How much food am I taking? How long am I sitting? The truth is, everyone's, most people are obsessed with themselves. They're not paying attention to you. I hate to break this to you, but they're not paying attention to you in the way that we think that they are, that, that leads to this sense of agitation. There's this great Zen teacher, Yvonne Rand. She's very earthy. She has this quote. So it's a little um, strong language, but you'll forgive me. I'm just quoting her. Her line is, I'm the piece of shit the world revolves around. And it just captures that, how you know, we're often judging ourselves here at the same time. Are they looking at me? You know, what are they thinking about me? You know, Carol was going, it's all about me. Hate to break it to you, it's not. You know, everyone's in their own world. But to see how this obsession creates this anxiety, we need to see it. We need to see this core of this, this am I okay, and move to another way of relating to that. Because it is a central question. We want to be okay. The heart of this practice is about becoming okay. But it doesn't get there through this restless agitation, these kinds of mind states I've been talking about. It gets developed by coming into accord with reality, with things as they are. It comes about by minimizing projection and story and actually deepening a true sense of connection to ourselves, to our inner knowing to others and to reality by knowing the truth of things and beginning to actually trust ourselves. We have everything we need here to awaken. So I talked about last week. We have a mind and a body. That's all the Buddha said we need to come to awakening. And here not only do we have a mind and a body, we have supportive conditions. We have the retreat container. We have the teachings. We have the Dhamma. It's just what we do with that. My good friend Sylvia Borstein, a great teacher, says her main practice is just sitting down and not telling herself stories. Not telling yourself stories. Stories about yourself. How are you? How was I? How will I be? Not telling yourself stories. It's as simple as that. We do it by being willing to be with what's here. And even if what's here is restlessness, we can know that. We can get interested in that. We can accept that. Of course, we need to acknowledge the places that are in our experience where there is contraction, where there's pushing away, where there's holding on. But it's by turning towards going towards, getting curious about, getting interested in, this is where the shift comes. This is where the mind actually begins to become our ally rather than this source of frustration and resentment and worry and anxiety. It's not, it's not, we don't need to be a victim of this restlessness of the mind, of this obsession with who am I, and how am I, and how was I, and how will I be. Starting to trust that, 
trusting the simplest way of practice, being present, showing up, then things can really begin to unfold. In a very natural, gentle way, we then don't have to push, we don't have to have an agenda. We just need to show up. So I want to finish with a really short poem by Hafez called It Felt Love. And it goes like this. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. And when I read that, what I thought is what we're feeling is the encouragement of mindfulness, allowing us to open, to open to what is true, true in both a personal sense, but also in the deepest impersonal sense, the nature of reality. And this mindfulness brings that light that allows us to unfold to the deepest places of our being, really these core issues. And as we open to that, explore that, as we turn towards actually what's difficult, see the places that we contract or hold on or grasp or are filled with restlessness, as we turn towards that and explore, it leads to a deep and profound acceptance of who we are and our experience. And that is what allows the freedom that's possible in this path and this practice to be known and tasted. And the only place it's tasted is here and now, not past, not future. So let's just sit together quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.